This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the FAA's unleaded fuel initiative runs on E. And young aviators hold a successful fly-in. Also, is the world ready for a manned drone? I don't know, but you might be ready for an IFR clearance on your mobile device. Ooh, I'm, I'm ready for that. You ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, you spoke to our guest this week. A really cool story. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, we talked to Kevin Montgomery, the uh, historian at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And uh, Kevin and other folks at Embry-Riddle uncovered evidence that President John F. Kennedy took float plane lessons while he was stationed in Miami. Very cool. Can't wait to hear about that. Uh, let's get right into it. I want to talk about fuels for a minute. But this is not something we talk about often, but is always kind of running in the background. The FAA, as you know, is, is uh, evaluating future unleaded aviation fuel. And they have been for a while. A while, yeah. It's this multi-prong approach. It's this multi-year plan. Uh, AOPA works to get it funded through Congress every year. It's a, it's a big deal, obviously, because we have to go to an unleaded fuel at some point. All right. And we want to do it with the least impact to the broadest number of airplanes possible. Yes. So we are currently in the phase where they are testing two candidate fuels, one made by Shell, one by Swift. So these are the finalists. Yeah, these are basically the finalists to this point, and they're and they're testing it in engines. And I think this is a really interesting announcement the FAA made recently. Basically an update, but something really important came out of this, I think. Okay. Essentially, what they said, if you kind of read between the lines, is they've, I will say, delayed testing or the testing is going to take a little bit longer because there are challenges and basically parameters that the fuels aren't meeting. So does that mean that they're going to maybe have to start over or shift to something else or, or think about reworking the engines and fuel tank compatibility? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of potential issues that happen with these things. You know, it's uh, it's amazing when you start to think through it. I mean, you mentioned a few. It's like, um, you know, just think of like, like ethanol and how it potentially could eat at lines yes. and stuff like that. So obviously every fuel has 
potential drawbacks, and our whole system is geared towards 100 low lead. That's right. But the FAA said that, quote, differences in the two PAFI fuel, PAFI is the uh, Piston Aviation Fuels Initiative, uh-huh. differences in the two PAFI fuels as compared to 100 low lead is what stopped the testing. Huh. Yeah. Um, well, and we they, know 100 low lead works as it is right now and has for decades. Yeah. But that's, it's not super good for the environment nor for individuals that come in contact with it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there's only, and for me, in terms of you know future supply, there's one producer. That's the thing. If yeah. something happens, and it, if something happens in that supply line, it really puts a halt on everything. Wasn't there some kind of delay a few years ago during a really bad Atlantic uh, hurricane season? I thought I read something about that. This uh, additive or some component. Couldn't come from the refinery over to the states. Yeah, well, the re- yeah, the one the one place in the world that makes this tetraethyl lead is uh, it's in Britain, I think. Okay, that's and what I thought. So yeah, yeah, if uh, if there's a problem, it's like man, there goes our fuel supply. So, you know, for all those reasons and many more, it's time to move on to an unleaded fuel, and uh, it looks like they are hitting a bit of a snag in that process. Well, and they have like sort of a, a tentative deadline of December 2019 uh, to wrap up the testing. That's what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wow. So more to come on that, I'm sure. Talking about the future, uh, you had a great weekend with this uh, this new fly-in. Oh, man, that's a great segue, Ian. <laughs> it was, in fact, it was the, the future of aviation, the young aviators. Um, we had a wonderful fly Well, we were part of a wonderful fly-in at uh, Triple Tree Aerodrome in South Carolina, which for podcast listeners who haven't been there and are relatively close on the East Coast, it's a gotta-go kind of a place. We're talking a 7,000-foot grass landing strip. And uh, Pat Hartness uh, just opened the doors to his whole place. It's got upscale camping facilities. And it was run by young aviators, four young aviators, with a welcome to seasoned aviators. Okay, cool. So so how is it different from a regular flying? I mean, most flying, it's like, oh, you go and you sit in some seminars and walk around and look at airplanes. So how is a young aviator's flying? This was a lot more camaraderie based and a lot more meeting people, socializing, hanging out, uh, you know, kind of stuff that young people like to do. There was a lot of Instagramming and Snapchatting. (laughs) Uh, In fact, I I learned what a boomerang was. You know what that is? I have no idea. Uh John Munn, our social director, taught it to me. It's a. Uh, it's basically um, for those of you who are not, you know, uh, Snapchat and Instagram friendly. <laughs> it's when you do an action and you video it and then you repeat it over and over and over and over and over again. It's just kind of a cute, Wait, quirky thing. You repeat the action in real life. Well, there's a there's an app that kind of makes the action. Uh, for instance, co-organizer Kayla McLeod and Ryan Hunt. They were the co-organizers, and Kayla came running across in front of this uh, cabin class Waco biplane and kind of jumped up. Yeah. And Ryan grabbed her. Yeah. You know, and then and then so John Munn made the thing repeat itself like you know five times in a row. Then you share it on social media. Huh. Like and, a, like a into a into a. Is it Jeff or GIF? Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like it's kind of like a GIF. Okay, as as but um, but huh. so anyway, so people are kind of communicating like that. Now, here's the cool takeaway: we met a lot of young aviators. First of all, AOPA flew down there in a Cessna 182. Very cool. I was the captain of the ship on the way down. Nice with, with John Munn and uh, Tyler Pangborn from ASI. Yeah, uh, and then we split duties on the way back. John Munn's an excellent instrument pilot, by the way. Oh yeah, I believe it. So we landed there. We got to park in the uh, camping area underneath these. 
tall hardwoods and pine trees. It was just so beautiful. Cool. There are ponds near there and bridges. There's a gazebo people hang out at and judge other people's landings. Yes. Ours was a, was a buttery landing, I must say. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I was proud of myself there, but I had I had go-arounds uh, before then at other <laughs> airports where we landed for gas. So I'm not That's saying good. You that, got it out of your system. I'm just being honest That's with good. our podcast listeners. That's good. That's good. But, um, but so it's a cool place. And so we met um, a young flight instructor who's 19 years old from mm. North Carolina, and he's looking to get a job as a float plane pilot down in Florida. Oh, cool. Met another young uh, another young man from Middle Tennessee State University. He wants to be a professional pilot. Met a young woman uh, who's also going to school, and she she listens to our podcast, watches AOPA Live, and reads our stuff on ePilot. Nice. And she was gung-ho, you know, just so psyched to be there. And really, it was contagious. So you had a feeling of there really was something happening with young people. Was the marketing for this any different? I mean, it's not to get it super into the weeds, but it's Great like, question. you know, was it like, did they put out ads and all that uh-uh. traditional stuff? Or is it like it was uh-uh. all digital, like told their friends through they social? Told it, and, you're right. They told yeah. their friends. And a lot of the word traveled on social media. I actually, I sent an email to Kayla and she responded just about an hour ago that they did use social media a little bit. Yeah. They also, a lot of the parents appear to be AOPA members. So there's some generational fluidity okay. here. Okay. And so the parents told the kids about the articles that we wrote. Oh. And that we got a little, you know, they got a little bit of information from that too. Oh. Awesome. Uh, Triple Tree posted a little bit on its website as well, but yeah. a lot of it was sort of, sort of granular. It's kind of how you have those, what do you call it when all those people gather in one spot and they dance and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, like a flash mob. That's yeah. it, a flash mob. Next, yeah. oh my age. Yeah. I just forgot, <laughs> I forgot what the word. It's kind of like a flash mob where yeah. kind of word, word spreads. Yeah. Uh, but Pat Hartness, who's basically the patriarch of Triple Tree, basically opened the door and threw down the gauntlet and said, hey, listen, from now until forever, you guys have a place. Come to Triple Tree. That's cool. We're here for the youth. The youth is the future of aviation, and he just could not have been more helpful. Yeah, that's great. I know they they have always there at Triple Tree been passionate about uh, bringing kids, and they do it, I know, a lot through model aircraft. They do. Uh, and, and RC And the Upstate so. South Carolina Youth Association does a lot of uh, aviation work as well. Yeah. And um, it's a pretty neat place. They have classrooms up at the top of the hill. And, of course, Pat Hardness has some awesome airplanes. There's yeah. A, there's a P-51 Mustang. Yeah, There's a the Spartan, Spartan Executive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it was it was great. There, were, there was good. a biplane there this weekend uh, that was set up for ride giving, and I got to fly in, a, in an air cam. Oh, first time? Uh, well, it was not my first time in okay. air cam. My first time in air cam there. Yeah. It would have been. Let me tell you what. That is a cool airplane. Oh, air cam is the best. I so love that. So uh, tell, tell the folks who don't know about it what it is. Uh, so I I always say it looks like a flying canoe because uh-huh. the fuselage does look a bit like a canoe. Long and narrow, yeah. Yeah, but it feels like an aerial motorcycle. Uh, I think. And it kind of looks that way because you got like a little windscreen in front of you. Yeah, yeah. It is just the best. It's like open cockpit, you know, low and slow. Twin engine. Yeah, it's the best. Pusher prop. Yeah. And now, wasn't that thing designed for like National Geographic photographers? Yeah, yeah. Phil Lockwood, uh, the designer, uh, he... This is amazing that they would even do this, but they National Geographic commissioned him to to build something because they were flying uh, over... I believe is a rainforest mm-hmm. of South America. Yeah, I think. the Amazon. Yeah. yeah, and uh, basically he he needed something that was safe down low for long periods that's that great. could land in a soccer field, and that's what they built. This so. is a cool aircraft, and it provided a wonderful opportunity to to photograph that event and do a little video there to bring back to our viewers, you know, the look and feel of it. Yeah. It's just such a unique place. It is very cool. All right, so talking about unique, Kitty Hawk. I said I mentioned man drone in the beginning. Kitty Hawk, not the airfield. Yes, not the airfield. Not uh, yeah. <laughs> it, they've uh, they've taken the name. This is uh, 
we know we've talked a little bit about this. You've probably seen the news about it. This is the co-founder of Google yeah. has uh, has bankrolled this. It is essentially a manned drone. It looks like a quadcopter, sort of. Sometimes there are more than t- there are more than four propellers on yeah, this thing, yeah, like yeah. rotor blades. Yeah, this thing has ten actually. And the idea is it's meant to be kind of a personal, fun, recreational... Flying vehicle. Yeah, flying vehicle, you know, an eVTOL. Um, and they're actually flying this thing now. Vertical takeoff and landing. Yeah. And, and so now is it? Now this is powered traditionally. This is not electrically powered, or, or I'm not trying to put it on spot. No, 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 it is electrical. The, okay. It is electrical. Okay. And it flies for about 20 minutes. Okay, so there's limited time. Yeah, limited time. L- like right a now. regular drone, 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah, and the reason that it's, I think, so limited is because... And we should back up a little bit. So, so far, this has been on YouTube and CNN. They've only let a few people fly it outside the company. And they give these, but neither person who's been featured so far is a pilot. They give them about an hour of flight instruction, Uh and then they let them loosen this thing. That's crazy. It is amazing. And the whole point is that this thing should be easy to fly for anybody. And their their goal is to get it down to like five to ten minutes of instruction. That's kind of like the thought process behind the Icon aircraft. Yeah. Taken to the extreme. That's right. right. Open the door to people and take away some of the limits and just make aviation more inclusive and more fun and and, and you know, enjoy that freedom. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this thing, um, it will go, I, and I think they're going to get it to up something like 20 miles an hour. So far, they limit it to six miles an hour Okay. Uh, for, say, say, safety reasons, and also over only over water, which I'm not sure I, that's much safer. I noticed that. Yeah. Because, well, it has pontoons underneath it. It basically. does, yeah. And then the weird thing is they call it a flying car. Now, if you go online and look at this thing, you know, the, the Kitty Hawk Flyer, they call it a flying car. There are no wheels. And it looks like a flying boat to me. Yeah, so I don't get the car bar. I mean, <laughs> right. maybe in the future it will or something. Maybe but they have to call it that for some other reason. I don't know. So anyway, so it is an ultralight, and so it is legal. These guys, you know, ultralight doesn't require a pilot certificate or anything else. It doesn't require training. And so, yeah, they can go and fly this as an aircraft, as an ultralight aircraft, and do all the testing under the current 103 rules. But All right, now, I'm not trying to be a naysayer here. Yeah. But, yeah, of course, you still have to know the regulations so you stay out of trouble. Yeah. You don't want to fly yourself into a power line. Yeah. Because that they string them that, across that, lakes and stuff. That would be a bad day. So you gotta really take it seriously with that with that fun attitude in mind. Still, let's you know temper it with a little bit of reality. Yeah, and I think the thing about this is, you know, Robert Goyer from Plane and Pilot wrote about it, and he made some good points. But it's it's you know the thing is they're saying it's oh it's going to be transportation for the masses and the end of traffic and everything. And it's like you know Google this guy Larry Page just like they wouldn't get involved if it were something. It's they don't want it to be just re- recreational. They see something much they bigger. They see a transportation you yeah. know, a, a shift. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And it's like there is so far for us to go to get to that point. A lot of it is uh, airspace and regulations. Um, yeah. So the, the, the technology is there. Yeah. But then the hindrances are other things. Yeah. Like if everyone, like if cities had underground power cables, that would be one less hindrance. Yeah. If, uh, you know, if if there were po- places to park and land and charge up, that would eliminate another hindrance Yeah. as far as how long you can stay up and where you can go. Yeah. But, he, I mean, even looking at this video, though, it's like these 10 rotors sitting there spinning right next to your face. And it's like, I, you got to go see it because it's, I don't know, make me nervous. Now, but, these uh, are available for sale now. Yeah, we they should are. Add. They are. They haven't yeah. released a price. I have no idea how much they are, but uh, pretty fascinating stuff. All right. Well, let's, uh, should I put down a deposit on one? Uh, I would wait. Okay. <laughs>
<laughs> to be determined. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. I guess this is going to be the future show because the next thing we're going to talk about is just super cool. Probably everybody listening, you use an iPad for flying. You get uh, maybe ADS-B in traffic and weather. Maybe mm-hmm. you get an XM, something like that. It's so nice to have ADS-B in. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, even if all you have is charts on an iPad, it's like that's a phenomenal step upgrade from Absolutely. where we used to be. Uh, well, now MITRE, which um, you probably have never even heard of MITRE. MITRE is essentially a research sort of think tank that works. M-I-T-R-E. Yeah, that works with the FAA, and they develop all these like really cool technologies and stuff in the background that we never really see. But now they're developing these really forward-facing pilot tools, and one of them is IFR clearances via mobile device. This is really neat because uh, it gives you the information right at your fingertips and it also comes in sort of a color-coded kind of aspect where you know if you're waiting for a clearance or if you've uh, filed for a clearance or if you've gotten it. it. Basically, it eliminates you calling from the middle of nowhere and waiting and hoping that someone gets the phone, giving you the clearance. Yeah. You know, it saves a lot of time, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, basically what happens is it's like, you, you know, the technology requests clearance, you get the clearance back. And, uh, you got to confirm it. Yep, and you confirm it, and that's it. And so, you know, this is the GA version of Datacom, what the airlines have. That would um, be great. You know, and you can see a world not too far in the future where you request the clearance digitally. Right. It sends it to your device digitally. Uh-huh. You upload it to your flight planning app digitally. Uh-huh. Uh, it uploads it to your panel mount GPS Digitally, yeah, yeah, and you literally never have to talk to anybody. You don't touch anything. It's like boom, 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 done. Well, it's also more accurate. I, I think it could be more accurate because then you're taking out some of the bumbling of the human interface when oh, you're absolutely. trying to read something back. Absolutely. So yeah, you know, assuming that it's input correctly the first time. Yeah, which is an assumption. It's yeah. only as good as your your input. Yeah, that's right. So they're actually testing this live right now in Manassas, Virginia. Right. That's not far from here, Northern yep. Virginia. Yep. A few operators, I think, are testing it and uh, will four, be. Four flights in the hunt for this, too. Yep. And I think Tyson Ways is, like, he Facebook some information about this not not too long ago. Yeah, so they've been pretty in, excited. Yeah, in fact, Miter I think was their partner in developing. If you've used ForeFlight and gotten like the taxiway and runway alerts as you oh. cross them, oh right, that's Miter. Oh, is it? Yeah, they helped develop that's that. That's really te- helpful. That technology. I love that. Yeah, so lots of cool stuff that comes out of that, and ForeFlight being really cutting edge in terms of, you know, working with partners that develop that kind of stuff. So really, really cool stuff. I tell you what, you touched you touched this just briefly in the conversation just now, Ian. But this is my first time really kind of analyzing it, but being able to input a flight plan on your GPS device, you know, panel mount GPS, and have it communicate with your handheld is really a, a very effective backup. It's oh, yeah. really a cool way of doing that. It is cool. And it uh, increases that, that awareness. Now, yes, if you're doing VFR, you should be seeing and avoiding and looking outside, but it's nice to have that awareness factor built in, especially in a lower visibility situation or at night. Yeah, you know, Absolutely. Or in high terrain. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And to me, it's like, you know, people could say, oh, the technology takes away from the flying. I think it adds to it because it's like it gets rid of all this stuff that before were really these just task saturation type of things. It's like being able to not have to read clearances back and forth, like you said, and yeah. the human errors of writing it down, repeating it back, and putting in your flight plan, in your like panel mount. I mean, all that stuff, that was all human well, error, you know? Well, and the other thing about reading a clearance back is, yes, I know you're supposed to have uh, proper etiquette, radio etiquette. Yeah. Where Now, if I'm on the ground and I'm getting ready to call and, and taxi, if someone's getting ready to get a clearance read back to them and I can tell, I'll wait. It's yeah. like, I got time, I can wait. Yeah. Not everyone operates with those standards. Yeah. And so if you're a, an, uh, on an instrument flight plan and you're really waiting to hear that and someone, you know, jumps in, it could confuse people. Yeah. 
Yep, that's right. So, yep. All right. So uh, we want to end today with, uh, I, I think, some sad news and uh, something that we'll see what the impact is for the future. But uh, two aircraft test crashes recently. The first one, thankfully, no fatalities. This is the Airvan 10. This is uh, the Gips Aero GA-10 Airvan. And this is um, by the folks uh, based in uh, India. This uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Is it Mahindra? Yep. Yep. Mahindra Airspace. And we've talked about them a little bit uh, before on the podcast. Yep. The Gips Aero. And it's based on the, the Dash 8 model. So yeah, it's yeah, the Airvan 8. That's right. Turboprop version, I think, like you said. So yeah, they had uh, they were doing I think some spin testing they out were. west, and uh, apparently I, I, I we don't know yet, but theoretically I guess or uh, presumably couldn't recover, uh-huh. and uh, and actually both pilots bailed out. They did. They had parachutes and they they were okay. Yeah, the aircraft was destroyed. Yeah, so we'll see what happens there with the test. You know, usually that kind of stuff can be remedied. Uh, any sort of airframe deficiencies can be remedied and uh, I wonder fixed if it's and move because on. of the bigger engines that things um, because assumably it's a longer air and longer airframe or yeah. larger yeah and or you know with a bigger engine i wonder what what that did yeah i don't know changes the cg somehow who knows i guess we'll, certainly i guess we'll find out yeah but in sad news um the magnus e-fusion which we really haven't talked about but this is a uh, an electric aircraft from hungary that siemens is working with um they all they crashed uh may 31st in hungary during a test flight two people on board both were killed and this one's troubling for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that there are reports, now who knows if this were the case, there are reports there was a fire. And uh, oh, were they, I wonder if they were using a lithium-based battery. Yeah, and you do start to wonder about electric aircraft. One of the big risks that people talk about is fire from the batteries. Right. So um, I think a lot more to, to find out exactly what happened there, but uh, definitely something to, to watch for. That is sad. And actually following up on that, I, I wrote a story not long ago about Siemens because they had predicted that by 20, if I'm remembering my own story right, I wanted to say that by 2030, they predicted that a large number of aircraft would have electric engines. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. and there, are, yeah, I know Siemens is big into it. This, uh, they provided the electric motor for this, obviously, and uh, Magnus provided the airframe. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know. And there's also testing of that going on in Texas. Mm-hmm. Some of the Siemens aircraft down there. So that's that's something interesting that we will have to keep our eye on that. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So um, from all of the future stuff that we talked about today, let's go a bit into the past. <laughs> We're going to go backwards now to yeah. the 1940s. Uh, and just a really cool story about kind of some, some lost and forgotten history. Yeah. We're going to hear a little bit more from Kevin Montgomery about how he tracked down the history, the long lost history of John F. Kennedy, the president's flight training. Via Skype, we're going to welcome Kevin Montgomery to us from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida. Kevin, how are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Thanks for being with us. And we'd like to find out a little bit more about this amazing coincidence and a little bit of forensic work that you guys did to link President JFK, uh, John Kennedy, to aviation and to a solo flight not far from a seaplane base in Miami. Tell us, uh, tell us the steps. I'll give you a bit of background. It started back in 2003 when the university created uh, the Heritage Project, which was a small group of people dedicated to preserving the history of Embry-Riddle. And this was led by Bob Rocket at the time. 
And Bob was uh, reaching out to alumni and employees from the early days, trying to f you know flesh out our history. And he was talking with a woman named Helen Hassey, who had been uh, one of our flight instructors in Miami at our seaplane base during uh, the 1940s. And Helen told Bob that she recalled the day that JFK showed up at our seaplane base for flight lessons. And this was a shock. You know, we'd never heard this rumor before. This was the first time. So that's how it started. And that was in 1944 in May. And we should add, as we record this, today is May 29th. And this would have been his 101st birthday. That's correct. So he was in the military then, and he was a, he was a Navy guy, and so he, we all know him from PT-109 and the incident that happened where the boat was rammed, and, and he actually injured his back. That's correct. His, his incident with PT-109 was less than a year before that, in August of 43, and when he came back stateside, he was restationed uh, in Miami, kind of convalescing. It was a, it was a training job for... Uh, patrol boats, but basically a desk job. So he was in Miami at that time. We knew that for a fact. So uh, he was in Miami at that time. And so where he was training, he could see across the bay to this uh, seaplane base, which was part of uh, the Embry-Riddle's early flight training programs. And there were like, what, six Piper Cubs that were flying out yeah. of there? Yeah, the, the seaplane base was a picture-perfect little shack on an island in the middle of the uh, Biscayne Bay off of MacArthur Causeway. And it was our first establishment in, in Florida since we moved from Cincinnati in the 1930s. We opened the seaplane base in 1939. And from then until after the war, we were training basically civilian pilot training in float planes. And from where Kennedy was stationed, it was literally half a mile away. I mean, he couldn't help but see us work. So also reviewing now, um, we know um, John Kennedy as, you know, he went into politics and went on to be the president, uh, announced a journey to the moon, that kind of thing. Now, he also has some aviation ties in his family that, that's also mentioned in this story at uh, Embry-Riddle. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, as you know, the, the, the Kennedy clan has had bad luck with, with flying. Uh, but his brother, his older brother, uh, was killed in combat in a flight mission just a few months after after he learned to fly in Embry-Riddle. And it was a PBY-4 uh, aircraft, which is a, a float plane. That's correct, yes. Yeah. All right. So now, um, I know that you didn't track this uh, the forensics down by yourself. You needed a lot of help. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the key contributors was uh, Embry-Riddle... Dean Emeritus Bob Rocket. Tell us a little bit about how you and Bob worked together to get this going. Well, when the Heritage Project started, Bob was the director of the project, the dean of the Heritage Project. And he was the one that got the initial contact with the rumor and turned to myself in the archives to dig through and see if we had any supporting evidence, and which we didn't. So Bob took the next step, which was to contact the Kennedy Presidential Library and uh, it was the first they had heard of it as well. They had no supporting evidence. So that's where the investigation started and basically stalled for a while. So now, a part of your job, and explain to people a little bit about what you do at Embry-Riddle. You're, you're an archivist. You obviously have a, a, a historical background in history. And, and I saw you looking at a bunch of negatives. You do, do photography. You do written archives or, or video or all of that. All, all of the above. It's, it's everything. It's... Uh, historical images, film, slides, negatives, uh, movie film, 
audio recordings, lots and lots of, um, of historical papers, some artifacts, a little bit of everything. You were looking at some visual evidence of this via pictures, and also there's a logbook entry that was a big part of trying to put this together. So walk us through that process of uh, either the photos or the logbook or the both, because you did you looked up a tail number, you looked up a logbook, and it all came together via 98-year-old uh, Kareen Smith, who's also an aviator. That's correct. When we failed to get any supporting evidence from the presidential library, there was really nowhere to turn until another piece of evidence kind of showed itself. And that happened to be just a routine Google search of JFK uncovered reference to a pilot's flight log allegedly belonging to JFK. And the log was um, viewable online. You can actually look at the entries online. And the first thing I noticed is that the flights kind of added up. They were in Miami, they were in the 40s, and most importantly, they were in Piper Cub J3s on floats, which is exactly the type of aircraft that we flew at our seaplane base. So that was the first piece. The second piece is when I started to look at the tail numbers in the log entries, on a hunch, I just went through our photographic collection, looking for you know historical photos of our seaplane fleet, and I found one of the ones that matched in his log. Now, how many thousands of pictures did you have to look through to get to that, that tail number match? Surprisingly, not that many. We don't have many pictures of each of our different operations. So it was a small, a small uh, subset to look through. But you had to know, you had to know where to go to find it, though, obviously. Oh, oh absolutely. And like I say, it was a hunch. Uh, I, I didn't think it would lead to anything. But uh, I did uncover a picture of an aircraft of a Piper J3 Cub at our seaplane base with the tail number from his logbook. Okay, so now Kareem Smith, she, she's, uh, y'all are calling her a celebrity. Now, is she still alive? Yeah. She's still alive. As a matter of fact, her 99th birthday is next week. Oh, this is a great birthday present for her. So, so, so she is also an aviator. She was a secretary uh, over there at the time. Um, that the float planes were flying, but she's an aviator, and I guess that she went on to do some work with the flight sim department. So her flight log was a key part of this puzzle. Absolutely. I mean, it, it was the key piece that put it together, because up until then, we had a logbook online with an entry that matched a picture of an aircraft at our seaplane base, but we couldn't be sure whether that was an Embry-Riddle aircraft or a visiting aircraft because it didn't say Embry-Riddle on it, and we couldn't be sure of the authenticity of the logbook online. Eventually, we did prove the authenticity of the logbook. I worked with the curators at the Chappelle Foundation, and we verified that it was an authentic logbook with Kennedy's signature, and that was a done deal. But the next step is, what was this aircraft doing at our seaplane base if it didn't say Embry-Riddle on it? Right. Corinne's logbook actually what she was doing is she had received her license a couple of years before that, I think in uh, 42, but she was going through more training mm -hmm. uh, in 44 for other um, certificates. And two of the aircraft tail numbers that, that she flew matched two that were in Kennedy's log. And we know for a fact that the aircraft she was flying, that she were, was flying were our aircraft. So that kind of got rid of the concern, why didn't it say Amber Riddle on it? 
my theory was sometimes when you have a, a fleet of aircraft, they don't all get repainted at the same time. Right. So this was probably a new acquisition. And that seems to have been borne out that she was flying in an Embry-Riddle aircraft that didn't say Embry-Riddle on it at the time. Gotcha. And then in one instance, she flew the same aircraft on the same day as JFK. That's amazing. That That's a fact. And she doesn't remember ever seeing Kennedy, but I mean, she's 99 years old. And, uh, but the logbook bears, uh, bears it out. I mean, it was the same plane, the same day. Pretty amazing to think about it. And so he took flight lessons in May of 1944, that's 74 years ago. And he, he went from his first flight lesson to a solo flight in a short amount of time, it looks like. And, and what we didn't realize at the time until I started looking at the log again is that his solo flight was on his birthday today, May 29th. Well, that's a great birthday present for anybody. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's fantastic. I'm a real fan of forensic files on TV, and so this is a, a lot of digging like that forensic files, and it's like finding a needle in a haystack. And you said that the inve investigation stalled for a number of years. It's, it's one of those things where you have to let the evidence come to you, otherwise you're going to get really frustrated and run up against dead ends, and there really was nowhere to turn. And it was only coincidence that the logbook went up for auction and it was bought by the Chappelle Foundation and they posted it online for Kennedy's um, uh, centennial birthday. So if it hadn't been for that, it would not have been accessible by a Google search. And we would, to this day, still not know of its existence. So that centennial would have been last year. And, That's correct. And this is the Chappelle Manuscript Foundation, which I had never heard of before, but in your business, you probably certainly, oh, I'm certain you have. And so what, that, what kind of organization are they? Just brief our listeners and viewers about that. Well, the Chappelle Foundation is based in Israel, but they have repositories in this country, and their specialty is collecting historical American documents, including uh, presidential documents, and they have a, a fairly impressive Kennedy collection as well. They buy documents at auction around the world and have uh, experts uh, research authenticity. And that leads me to another segue, which is um, how you guys contacted presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. That took a bit of work to, to get in touch with him. I knew he was at Rice University. I knew he was an authority that could either support us or give us a reason why this couldn't be true. But he was actually part, I think he's part of a, uh, a satellite operation of Rice University in D.C., and I just reached out to, to uh, the university wanting to get in touch with uh, Professor Brinkley. And before I knew it, he had called me back. He was really as excited as I am about this. This is pretty cool stuff. So how excited are people at Embry-Riddle to find this missing link? This is incredible. Like, like As you know, this has been a rumor for 15 years. And uh, as I pointed out, you know, it may not be significant in the grand scheme of things, but it sure the heck is pretty impressive around here and it's something to be really proud of and we can leverage that for you know for enrollment and the fact that one of the most famous men in history was a student or had come to Embry-Riddle that's something to be really proud of. That is really unique that is a great deal of, uh, of work behind the scenes a lot of people pitched in to make that happen Kevin, we're real happy for you guys and for Embry-Riddle. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got to do the position uh, you're in right now, a little bit of your background. Well, 
as university archivist, I, I basically manage the official archival repository for Embry-Riddle. Essentially, it's an archive of, well, at this point, over 90 years of Embry-Riddle history. As you know, we started as a flight school, as actually a company in a flight school in Cincinnati in 1926. So I have a lot of the original documents, the corporate documents, uh, the expansion through Miami. You know, in the 1940s, at the time Kennedy was there, we were the largest private flight school in the world. Uh, up to today, where we're foremost aeronautical university in the world. Uh, so we have a lot of the corporate documents, the uh, flight school documents, uh, academic documents as a university, a little bit of everything. And my job is to collect material that's that's relevant to our history from alumni and faculty and outside sources to preserve it, uh, organize it, interpret it, and use it for essentially everything the university wants to do. I mean, I would argue that history is a part of everything we do to have that, that sort of perspective on things. So I work with uh, alumni department, development, marketing, communications, uh, the flight line, uh, a little bit of everything. Keeping history alive is very important in aviation and in other fields as well. Now, do you have a little bit of an aviation background or did you uh, learn all this as, as you went? I, I do not have an aviation background. I'm, I'm a historian, but uh, obviously I'm interested in aviation or I wouldn't be here. But my passion is history, preserving it, because if we don't make a conscious effort to do that, uh, I guarantee you it disappears. And it's important. Well, now, uh, let me ask you a little bit about careers real quick, just switching the topic a little bit. You know, a lot of people are interested in aviation, and, and you know, we hear a lot about mechanics and pilots and cabin crew members and on, you know, corporate aircraft and, and commercial aircraft, but I would have never even thought about being a historian for an aviation college. That's a whole other venue. Well, I, I argue with people that there's a guaranteed future in studying the past. No matter what happens in the world, there's always an interest in the way things were. And, you know, retro is always in style. If it's not this generation, it's the next generation. And I, I found that in throughout my career that uh, it, it's, it's almost guaranteed employment in, in any industry that is open-minded. Kevin, this has been a fascinating interview. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you about that you want to let us know about? Well, I just, I'm, I'm glad that this is finally making the light of day. And as you can imagine, we were super cautious before we came forward with it. Uh, we made sure that all our T's were crossed and our I's were dotted. And to us, it is one of the most significant facts in our history. And I'm glad that I had a part in it. Well, we're glad you had a part in it too, Kevin. And thank you so much for taking your time to visit with us via Skype today. That's just a really unique story. I'm fascinated to learn more about it. Give our, um, I hate to put you on the spot, but give folks uh, a URL if they want to come and check out that video. I know it's on the Embry-Riddle news site. Actually, I'm not sure the URL for the video, but I know at this stage, if you just Google JFK Embry-Riddle, it comes up as a YouTube video. I'm sure it's going to get more popular as the days move on from Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's a fantastic uh, John F. Kennedy birthday story. Uh, Kevin, thanks again for, for visiting with us and uh, hope you. to meet you one day in person. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
David, thanks for tracking that down. It's just a really cool story. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, obviously Kennedy wasn't president at the time, but I'm sure whoever, you know, the instructor, it's like years later was like, I taught the president. Yeah, that's you right. Know, on a or shared an aircraft with him, like yeah. uh, like we heard about with the logbooks that coincided, uh, yeah. which is really, a, a, and I love, you know, forensic files. I really like uh, hearing, I don't like the stories, but I like learning about the technology. Yeah. And this is one of those cases where the forensics involved really put, the pieces together. Yeah, very cool stuff. All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk and on the Sporties Takeoff app and on iTunes. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.